Culture Classroom is supported by Laws and Learning, a nonprofit run by educators for educators with a mission to engage students, empower teachers, and transform schools. Through professional development conferences focusing on active learning, practical resources, and reflective teaching, including fishbowl classrooms and a unique teacher-to-teacher consulting program. Lausanne Learning is providing the authentic professional development your school needs. Visit them on the web at lausannelearning.com today to find one of their active learning conferences near you and to learn more about changing education from the ground up. Welcome to episode eight of the Culture Classroom. This is JT, and I'm with me today is Coach Weave. Coach Weaver, how are you doing today? Man, I'm. It's a great day to be alive. I can tell you that. Got a busy week coming up. Uh, it's been a busy week last week, but uh, everything's great at the Weaver household. And um, excited to be on this episode with you. It's been a long time since uh, it's been like two weeks since we recorded. So we got a lot of good information for our listeners. Yeah, we're kind of at a crazy time of year where winter sports is wrapping up and we're in postseason play. I know the state wrestling tournament was this weekend in Iowa. Uh, and you're heading into spring sports here. Girls track has already started in Iowa. You as a track coach, you got to be busy here real soon. Yeah, March 6th is our first meet. Uh, I'm going to be out of town Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week coming up. So it's more of a uh, – uh, the rain rains in the forecast, so – uh, it's a good thing, so I won't be missing much with our track program. But we get start off uh, with a triangle meet March 6th, and then we go all the way to May 3rd, May 4th, and then uh, football starts up again for us. Man, you're talking two weeks, so that's uh, not very long before you're real busy here. No, it, it, it gets here quick, fast, and in a hurry. People ask me after football season, hey, do you have a break? And I was like, I kind of get December, and then the second week in January we get started, and then – Right now, uh, March 6th, it's fixing to hit real fast. And uh, we'll be looking to win another state title. Um, I'll be definitely following what you do uh, on the Oval and in the, the field events here. And uh, we'll talk more as, the, as that comes up. But it's crazy to think that we're already in spring. I used to coach golf. And that always starts about mid-March around my birthday. And uh, I always said, said that like once golf starts, the season's over. The, the year's over. Like there's no, you know, and then you push the summer and then we're right into football season. So it seems like we're a ways away, but man, it'll go fast. Yeah. In the South, that's one of the, one of the, the big things that you want to coach is golf in the spring. Um, but you and I both know if you're a good golf coach, you're probably not a good football coach. Well, I, Randy Jackson kind of talks about that. You know how you, if you want to be a good football coach, don't have golf clubs. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that's really interesting. So, uh, you know, your spring down south is probably a lot nicer than our spring. Our fall, I think golf would be ideal in the fall here. But spring, there's a lot of meets where it's 35 degrees and freezing rain, and you're out there trying to trying to scramble and shoot par. It's, uh, it's tough. Yeah, scrambling, shoot double bogeys, more like my game. But, uh, man, I want to tell you, you mentioned Randy. Uh, I was just in Arkansas last week at a coach's clinic and got to eat breakfast with Randy. Uh, CDS two is on its way out here shortly. I don't know exactly the date, but, um, he spoke on a, a topic called daily fist fight of what culture is for a program. So it was good catching up with him and got to hang out with coach Chad Morris of, uh, Arkansas and his wide receiver coach, Justin step got to hang out with those guys. And we'll talk about what they do with their practice later on in this podcast, but it was a, it was a cool last, um, uh, last week hanging out with those coaches and, um, you can talk about what we learned. No, that's big time, Coach. That's big time. I know uh, Randy Jackson just spoke this last weekend at the Nike Clinic in Louisville, and uh, I checked my Twitter timeline, and shoot, he's sharing rides with Kirk Ferentz. So <laughs> we got some Iowa football high school connections all over the place here. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that on Twitter as well. Well, man, you ready to dive into this episode? In the classroom today, we're going to talk about your coaching philosophy and how that shapes not only how you view winning, but also how you intentionally coach your athletes and build skills so that they can be successful. So, Coach Weaver, I'm really excited about this. 
my coaching philosophy has changed a lot over the last few years. And uh, this November, I really stumbled onto something that I think has a lot of merit. So I'm really excited to share that with our listeners. Yeah, mine, mine as well. My philosophy is a, a young coach. I, mean, I started when I think I was 26. And uh, I was all about results, 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 results. I wanted the win-loss column. I wanted more in the W and more, uh, less in the L. So my philosophy then was I'm going to win at all costs. No matter what it took, I was going to win. If it was sacrificing whatever it was, uh, that win was more important than anything. So it now translates to um, now that I have two kids, uh, JT, it's, it's more of, you know, I want to coach every kid that I come in contact with and make an impact on. Uh, I treat them and coach them just like they're my son or my daughter. Uh, I think that's important for for people nowadays that, you know, it, it, you know, we get judged by wins and losses. Everybody knows that. It's no secret. But it's what you do, um, you know, with those kids. And I want a kid 10 years from now be like, hey, coach, um, here's an invitation to my wedding. Totally agree. Um, you know, it's funny because we do get judged on wins and losses. And people from the outside judge us based on those results. But, man, that's only nine days a year here in Iowa. We have a nine-game schedule. Um, if you're lucky enough to be in the playoffs, you can keep playing. But if you're just an average team or even a below average team, I don't want, at the end of the day, I don't want the work that I'm doing to be judged on just nine days. That's not a big enough body for me for the time commitment and the energy and the effort that I intentionally put in. Right. It's uh, We play 11 here, so it's 11 regular season games. But you think about this, you you – you do all this work, and it comes down to 11 games where you look at baseball, and they have, well, I don't know how many baseball games, basketball, it's more than nine and more than 11 with baseball and basketball. But you're right, it, it, the outside looking in, you are judged on how many wins does that person have this year versus how many losses, and did they win a championship versus what are they doing to impact those kids? What are they doing to empower those kids? How are they making them model citizens? And I, I think that's a lost art um, for some coaches today. Well, it's so funny. I think everybody says we want to build men. We want we want our kids to leave our program and be better men, be great husbands, be great fathers, be citizens that are engaged, that are responsible. Um, but I don't know if that happens all the places where they talk about it. I think a lot of people talk, and it's a great thing. And I think it's a great message that's infiltrated the sports coaching community over the last few years. But I still think people are lacking in how do you actually make that happen? Right. That, it has to be intentional. Um, and it's, we've said it before on here. It, it's messy. You know, it, it, there's some ebbs and flows that you have to go through, but you have to mean it. There has to be substance behind it. And uh, I, I think you're right, though. It's, it's lacking in some senses. And it sounds good off the tip of the tongue. We're going to build young men. Well, how are you building young men? Well, because we win. Well, that's what are you teaching them? You know, what? what is that? We teach them to be men because they win games. Yeah, that's not right. And how are they going to be a productive citizen? How are they going to provide for their family? Well, uh, we, we win games. You know, that, that's just my two cents on it. That's what I see some people doing. I didn't, no, I think you're absolutely spot on. What are you going to do, though? Like, as, a, as an engaged citizen, as a great husband or father, or, you know, as, as a high-character person, at least that's how I view myself. Uh, maybe that's the ego talking. But I want to know, most people will handle success the same way, you know? But I want to know what happens when life has you down, when it's really tough. And you don't know where your next meal is coming from, or you maybe you're in between jobs, or your wife leaves you, or tragedies happen in your family. That's where your character is going to be tested. And uh, I don't want to just compare fourth and one on the goal line in a tight ball game to those situations. I want to set kids up so that they're going to be able to respond the right way. The E plus R equals O mentality. Right. And for those that don't know what E plus R equals O, that's a Brian Kite. Um, term that's events plus your response equal, equals your outcome where events happen in your life where 
you control only the response. The events you have no control over, the response you have everything to do with, and that determines what outcome that you're going to have. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're totally spot on with that, of what we do in a day-to-day operation of, of a football program or a track program or a wrestling program you know, what we do on a day-to-day basis to impact these kids and to teach them, you know, we always talk about being leaders. Well, how are we going to teach them to lead? How are we going to teach them to handle adversity the right way? Whether it's, you know, like you said, uh, you, your wife leaves you. Um, you have someone die in your family. Uh, you know, something happens in your house, you know, just off the cuff, anything that happens that teenagers seem and deemed bad, how do they react to that? Well, you know, if we've always had, or I say we've always had, we, we have bad things that happen to us and it's how you handle them, how, how they see you react to stuff and how they see you react is how they're going to be taught because whether you know it or not, they see us a lot more than they see their own parents talking about kids in a day, in, in 365 days. Did you think about it? A kid goes, Goes to school probably for us 6.55 in the morning to lift weights, JT. They go to school. They probably have practice in the afternoon, 3.45, 4 o'clock. Get out of school. Practice till 6.30 or 7. Go home, do homework. Sometimes they don't even see their parents at night. So the one true figure that they have in their life that they see every day is they're going to see that teacher and they're going to see that coach at that school. So it's up to us to have an impact on them. No, you're exactly right. One of the things that we see is a lot of times my athletes, the kids that go to school all day, the kids that put in a two, three hour practice, have an hour lifting session in the morning, those kids go home and they're the parent because they've got three or four younger siblings that they're looking after while their parent is working. That's right. And uh, boy, that's a lot for me as an almost 40 year old man with, uh, you know, I've got three young kids and a wife and I'm trying to keep my household together. But I couldn't imagine going through it at 12, 13, 14 years old. Yeah, you you hear about it so often, too, of kids that have to go home and their parents working two jobs to make ends meet, and they go home and they have a younger sibling, and they're the one cooking dinner, they're the one giving a bath, they're the one putting to bed, and then they have to do their homework. So they're getting, you know, as we call it, on-job training. I mean, they're learning it right then. But, you know, that's it's not – what it's intended to be. It's intended for the adults to show the children how to react, how to respond, um, how to deliver when crisis happens. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's my calling or that's what I view as my calling as a coach, as a leader. Great example of it was Friday. We had our last wrestling practice. I've got my 30 kids. We get our practice in. We play dodgeball because it's kind of fun to wrap up the season just a little bit. And, uh, you know, just, it's about building relationships. And then I got a kid who goes to basketball practice right after wrestling. Cause he's on like an AAU select team. And, uh, one of the kids is missing three cookies out of his locker. They were, his grandma made them. They were in a, a homemade bag, whatever. He goes in, he goes, coach, I can't find my cookies. And, and he goes, I think so-and-so took them. And my response to that event was, I had to pull the kid aside and I just had to look him in the eye and say, I think that's the only thing he's going to eat tonight. Mm. And that's hard to hear when you're 12, 13 years old. And I don't want to poo poo what happened. I'll hold that other kid accountable for what he did because that's not right. You shouldn't go into anybody's locker. You shouldn't get anything out of anybody else's locker. But at the same time, that's a choice and a response that I'm asking another kid to make as a small sacrifice. Right. And, uh, I think there's so many times in leadership, in coaching, in teaching, we just don't know what happens behind that curtain and on. No, that goes back to I'm going to treat and teach and coach just like they were my own because I don't know what's going to happen. I I don't know what's happening at their house. I have no idea. So we, we talk about everything matters, right? Yeah. So as you were talking, I thought about this, what our coaching philosophy provides for us or for anybody, what it should provide a reference point to where we make consistent decisions. And it should be something that we go to 
like it's a not like a legitimate file that we fold like we pull out but it's a file in our brain where we go and we deem what success means to us we doing we deem what our philosophy is whether it's a win or a loss or I'm not talking about moral victories here. I'm not trying to say, oh, it's a moral victory if you get blown out by 50. not saying that. But your philosophy of teaching, of coaching, of life, it's pretty much who you are and how you teach everything. If you really think I think it's about a great it. Defin- I think it's a great definition. Uh, I'd go a step further to say it's probably not located in your brain. Maybe that's where the thinking, maybe that's where the, the ideas emerge at. Right. But it's got to come from your heart, Coach Weaver. That's a good point. It's a good point. It goes back to, and, and you know, P.J. Fleck. He talks about when your mind and your heart come together, that's where the magic happens. And I think that's that's a big deal. Uh, yeah. When your heart and your brain connect, or your mind, um, it's just what we deem success. It's our philosophy it's your own philosophy so we can't make up one for you you know by you listening right. to this podcast we can't we can't tell you to have heart values to have a change of heart for a kid not just because you're listening to this podcast but it's uh how you deem success it's who you are and how you teach everything it's how you make consistent decisions um i i almost go say it helps you have a better understanding of who you are. Once you, but once I really, you identify really that. like that, really like that definition, uh, especially from a male perspective where I, and I'm just as guilty talk to my wife. It's my biggest downfall probably, but just a lack of empathy. I, I think men in general find it hard to really connect with other humans and be empathetic, try to live in their shoes. Um, we say we do, but I'm just as guilty as everybody else. I, I'll just point the fingers right at me. Like I am not a very empathetic leader and I know that's got to change. Right. Well, I'm, I'm kind of empathetic now that I'm going back on the relationships that I have with those kids. You know, if one of them's hurting, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with them hurting as well. Like what's going on. So we have one right now that's going through a couple of problems and every day I go and hug on him and like, man, you good. Everything, everything's going great at home. And that coach, you just don't understand. I was like, I'm, I'm just here to be a shoulder you can cry on or a, an ear you can talk to. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of my, my MO with the kids. I get their heart. Um, it's so needed. It's so needed. I write in my book more than the game about capturing hearts and the coaching philosophy throughout the story is I call it the process of the ship. And it's relationships, and that's what you and I, we talk about it from the very first episode. It's all about relationships, and your relationship never stops. I think it's so powerful that you just said a few minutes ago about how you can't wait to be invited to some of your athletes' wedding. I mean, the long-term thinking that goes into a relationship, or the intentional long-term thinking that goes into a relationship, that's something that a 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kid doesn't have the power to do yet. But we as the leader, and I'm calling myself less of a leader and more, I want to be a thought leader. Yeah, good point. I want, I want to plant ideas. That's the whole point of this podcast. You and I are very similar-minded people. We are, we're thought leaders for each other. Hopefully, we're building a little network and community of like-minded individuals as well. But that relationship then leads to leadership. And then if you can get those two things working together, you got the relationship, it's sustainable, it's not fake, it's authentic, you are coaching the heart, capturing the heart, then you're going to build leaders into that leadership, you know, intentionally, what are you doing? Not just some random lesson that you're teaching randomly uh, at practice or some quote that you put up, but actually how are you teaching leadership? whether it's a unity council or a book study or some of the things we're going to talk about later in podcasts, but you get those two things working together and that's where you really win championships. Yeah, absolutely. We, so we had a headmaster, um, who, who had been in our school forever. Um, I think 20 something years. And he had a quote that he always said, it says little eyes, little eyes are always watching you. And I think that was, that was his 
way to capture the heart. Well, he said that all the time, and it was the first phrase he said at back to school, but he was at the steps every morning of the school, greeting every kid that came through that door, and probably had a nickname for every one of them. I stood outside with him one time, and he had a he had nicknames for people, like, hey, Munchkin, hey, whatever, hey, Sally Sue, hey, yeah. Knight, hey, Knight Rider, stuff like that. But he captured the heart, and when he retired, you could see all the people who had ever been a student or a faculty member under his leadership was there. I mean, the place was packed. And just this goes back to show what kind of leadership he had. And you want to talk about having uh, capturing the heart. Well, you think about Justin Stepp, who's a wide receiver coach at Arkansas, who just was at SMU. And Cortland Sutton, the wide receiver that he had. You go back and if you follow Justin on Instagram or Twitter, uh, you can see the relationship that him and Cortland had. Well, uh, Justin and his wife had a son, and he named his son Cortland. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so you, you start looking at that. I mean, named his son Cortland. That just shows you what kind of relationship a player and a coach had. And that, that was football-oriented, but it went way beyond the gridiron. Yeah. I I go back and forth on nicknames. I'm a huge nickname guy. I don't think kids always understand the nicknames and where they come about and and you can't be mean with them. You can't it, it can't be sarcastic. No. Uh but I I think that nicknames are naturally uh, a way to belong. I think if you get a nickname at least in guy code it's kind of like, man, I belong to this. I'm part of this community. And uh I know you're starting to do that with ARB yep. with your wide receivers call signs. I, I mean, I think it's awesome. Yeah, we're we're doing that. Uh, one of them's called his last name is Vincent, and he's already named himself. He goes, "I'm Vinsanity." It's like, hey, go with it, <laughs> go awesome. with it. Um, so they they told they're not going to call me Captain anymore. I am now Pilot. I was like, that'd be cool if I was like Pilot First Class or. Top Gun or something like that, but they're calling me Pilot, and I'm I'm letting them roll with it. Well, and, and I think about my own classroom right now, and um, a couple of athletes also. But really, it started in the classroom. I got a kid named Cole uh, in seventh grade right now. Not a super unique name. We call him Slaw. <laughs> Love it. Um, I got a I got another kid that has, it's kind of a little bit embarrassing, but I took it in and I made it something. So it's not embarrassing. It's relationship based, but he turns in an assignment one time. His name's Lance and he left out the N and Lance. So he turns in his assignments lace. Well, I can't ignore that. So the next day when I see him, I'm like, Hey lace, how you doing? And he kind of looks at me and I'm like, well, you know, and I had the paper with me and I kind of held it up and he goes, that's okay. Mrs. Tory. I got it. Oh, yeah. And, and so turnabout's fair play, you know, like, it, if if you don't have the relationship though, now it's a power struggle. Now it's now it's something that's demeaning. And uh, Cole and I have a great relationship. Lace and I, I really value him. And uh, you know, I'm man enough to be called Mrs. Tory, and that's all right. Yeah, you better be. <laughs> uh, so we have a we have a math teacher who was Stephanie Lynch, who was on a previous podcast we had, but she has nicknames uh, for every one of her students. And one of them got mad. She goes, you didn't, you don't have a nickname for me. You give everybody a nickname. She goes, okay, well, your nickname is nickname. Because you want one so bad, I'm just going to call you nickname. So it stuck. But I think, uh, I think it, I think it brings a, a, a sense of personal, personal touch to either your, your football team or maybe your position group or even your classroom. I think it just brings something personal uh, to those kids that, you're more than like you're here in college. You're more than just a number. You actually know who that person is, but uh, you give somebody a nickname, you're you're diving into a little bit more of an intentional relationship with them rather than just having you know being called Mister Weaver or Mrs. Uh, Tory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it, it's okay. Like I, I shared that with my principal, and I'm like, hey, just so you know, Lace calls me Mrs. Tory, and it's okay. <laughs> it, it's it's not a big deal. It's not anything that he's trying to threaten me or we're not angry at each other. It's just, it's our relationship. And, 
you know what it's like. You work with people every day or you go and you see the same people every day. I mean, if there's nothing there, it makes it so much harder than if there was actually like caring and thought and purposeful, intentional relationships behind the work we do on a daily basis. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I want to share with you a philosophy that I came up with earlier this year, and it happened during wrestling. And at first, I'm like, oh, this is gold. This is gold, but I don't have anything to substantiate it. And then we actually did a data dig, and uh, we found out, holy cow, there's a lot more here than what I thought. And now, after even talking with you about it and other people in my inner circle, I think there's a whole lot there with it. And uh, it came from wrestling. As a wrestling coach, one of the things that we're trying to do is we got to figure out scoring. Um, wrestling stalling is a big deal. I've seen a couple of, I've been to a couple of clinics or talked to other officials, other wrestling minded people. And there's a couple of things that are coming that aren't quite there yet, but they're coming down the road and uh, it's going to impact scoring and that's going to change matches. And we want to eliminate stalling. Two that I've heard, one, there's kind of a push for a while there of making scoring like more like freestyle wrestling, where if you push your opponent out of the circle uh, because you're offensive and they aren't, then that's one point for you. The other scoring suggestion that I've heard, and this came from officials actually in the wrestling community, is there's talk of making a takedown worth three points. Huh. And so... Right now, a takedown is two, an escape is one. Oklahoma State in the 70s and 80s, they were big. Take them down, cut them, take them down, cut them, take them down, cut them. It got to the point where even Dan Gable in Iowa was like, we have to change our philosophy because of that philosophy. So if the state or if the NSHS ever changed the takedown to make it three points, uh, we have to get takedowns. That's how you win matches, getting out on bottom and then trying to keep it close, that's not going to happen uh, late in the match. Right. The other, the other thing is wrestling coaches, I'm dealing with a lot of kids that haven't wrestled very much at this point. They're freshmen, sophomores. We have a really young team. Wrestled for me in middle school. So we've got a, a relationship that's three, four, five years old now, but they aren't winning very many matches. And if you're outcome-based, like you said, and I fell into the same trap too. I talked with uh, Coach Moore on that podcast about Early on in my career, we made some deep runs in the playoffs, and it totally gave me a false sense of reality. Yeah. But when you only focus on outcomes, you're not building skills anymore because you don't have to be a great technician and win matches. You could just get lucky, or maybe you come across a, a weaker opponent. There's a lot of ways that you can win without actually being intentional or doing things. And, and so then, as a coach, I'm not really coaching my kid. I'm just kind of putting them out there and seeing what happens. Right. Um, so one of the things that I do with my young team and we talked about it at the beginning of the season was, I don't know, let's emphasize scoring. And the other coaches around me, they're like, well, how do you do that? Like, we, okay. So we push takedowns, but you can score on bottom. You score a lot of ways. So I came up with four words. I want to score first and score last. And at the time I remember some of the other assistant coaches, they're like, Oh, coach story. That's a lot of smoking mirrors. Like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Why do we have to score first score last? And my only conclusion was if you score first in a wrestling match, you're in control of the match. You're at least offensive minded. You're pushing your opponent around. You're trying to establish your dominance. If you score last in a wrestling match, you're either wrestling for pride or you're pinning. And if you pin, that's how you win. That's right. And so that's just, point. it kind of shaped my practices. Good point. That, that's, that's huge, man. Like, I, you, all right, here's, here's where we just went to with me with score first, score last. You said that. And I go exactly. My brain goes to the Super Bowl. Who scored first in the Super Bowl? Patriots. Who scored last in the Super Bowl? Patriots. Exactly. And who won the Super Bowl? <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. They, they're just kind of a machine, but it's the Patriots. Yeah, but you – so I went back, and we, we started talking about this a little bit. And we, we were in Arkansas. I was like, let me let me see if he's got this kind of data. Let me see what kind of data I can kind of pull up. 
So I look just at our first two seasons. Just look at two seasons. I wasn't going to get into five seasons since Coach Davis has been there. In two seasons, JT, when we scored first, we were 11 and 1. Wow. When we did not score first, are you ready for this? You ready for this? I'm ready. <laughs> we were 4 and 6. Very average. Yeah. So. I challenged Coach Davis, and I said, look, let's get to where we take the ball first. You know, there's no secret we're a high-tempo offense. We scored 42 points a game this year. Um, So I I said, well, let's let's just train our kids to get the ball first. He goes, you can't do that. I said, Coach Davis, all you got to do is when you win the toss, take the ball. He goes, yeah. He goes, what if I don't win the toss? I said, 99 times out of 100, the other coach is going to do what, JT? They're going to defer. They're going to defer. Exactly. So um, I got him thinking on that. I'm thinking I'm going to compile three more seasons, but I got like two and some change. And I was looking, I said, and we were in Arkansas and I said, you don't want to know this, but uh, we're 11 and one when we score first. He goes, no. I said, yeah, we're 11 and one. He goes, what about when we, when we don't? And I told him the number he goes, Oh, you're you're just doing all these numbers. And I said, Coach, I'm giving you I'm giving you data from the first two and some change seasons for you since you've been here. And uh I, I, I think it's powerful of the score first, score last. But then I, man, I what a mindset to change of hey, we're gonna go attack instead of be uh kind of feel you know, the you think about the first quarter. What do teams typically do? Yeah. Fill each other out. Typically, yeah, right? You don't want to save your best stuff. You want to save your best stuff for those halftime adjustments or a critical moment when you actually need it. I'm saying you get your best stuff and you go attack, and then maybe you're up 21 rip or 21 7, and they're playing catch up. And, you know, like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a game plan until you get punched in the mouth. It's a great quote. You know, so I, I appreciate you going back over the last two years and looking at your data. That that should tell you right there. Do you want to be average, ordinary, or do you want to be special? Right. And if you want to be special, then we have to go down and we have to score right away. That's right. Um, here's how our wrestling numbers went back. And shout out to Jacob Bronner, uh, Monarch assistant wrestling coach, a guy that I really appreciate. I'm in the trenches with every day. And uh, he's... He really has bought into some of this philosophy. And he actually went back and looked at every match and with the score first, score last mentality. And he actually did the data. So here's our numbers for our wrestling season. And again, we're real young. The, the cliche that we use is we're a JV team wrestling varsity. Uh, hopefully the future is bright, though, if we get these kids to continue to build skills and we de-emphasize winning. But here's our numbers. When we don't score first or don't score last, we are one and ninety-one on the season. Say that again. There was when we don't score first and don't score last, we are one and ninety-one. Wow. And the the one kid that was a fluke thing, an outlier, but that's a one point zero nine percent success rate. Hmm. On the matches that we score first, only score first, we are 4 and 12. So 16 total matches, 25% success rate. On the matches that we only scored last, so again, if you're scoring last, you're either playing for pride or, or you're pinning or you're trying to looking for shots, those kind of things. Uh, when we only scored last, we were 8 and 3. So 72.7% success rate. But then get this, coach. If we do both, like like I intentionally tell them every day at practice, when we score first and score last, are you ready? Uh, I'm, I'm waiting. We are 35-0. and 0. <laughs> Wow. 35-0. So they're... So there is something that score first, score last. Well, I, I can't I can't guarantee you're going to win. Even if you do score first, even if you do score last, I can't guarantee you're going to win the match. 
no one can do that. That's out of our control. That's where, and again, we want to de-emphasize outcomes. But man, if I could say, if you score first and you score last and we're 35-0. and 0, That's 100%, by the way. You know, and that's real information, real data. And again, shout out to Coach Bronner. I know he invested a whole Saturday while his wife was watching Netflix and they're on the same couch and uh, they don't have kids yet. But it's like, that's a lot of time to go back and watch a lot of matches just to try to prove if my theory holds water or not. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. So, all right, well, let's look at this then your score first, score last mentality. So I was talking uh, this weekend to Coach Morris uh, from Arkansas, and he talked about the middle eight. And I was intrigued by it, and I was like, the middle eight. And he said, or it could be called the four over four. And he says, we want to emphasize how we can go the last four minutes of a half in the first four minutes of a half and win those. And I was kind of wrapping my head around that. Like, how do you do it in practice? What does that look like? And he was saying that at the, in practice, they'll literally have a halftime at practice for three minutes. The offensive staff will go talk to the offensive coaches. The defensive staff will go talk to the defensive coaches. And they'll say, Hey, great first half of practice or, it was good, but I think we can do better in this part, so let's make the second half better. And they break, and then they go to the second half. Well, you say score first, score last. If you put the middle eight in term, it would be score last, score first. And I don't know any data on that right now, but if you flip those four words, you know, because you think about you want to win, you want to, the first, or excuse me, the last four minutes of a half is so crucial because you, you want to score, and if you deferred, you're, you know, you're going to get the ball back. Or uh, if you didn't, then you got to hold them out and not score. So, so I'm just thinking, what would that data look like if we score last, score first, where you win the second, the first half by scoring last, going into halftime, and then you win the second half by scoring first in the second half. So, I, like I said, that, that's the middle eight. Uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, I don't know if there, there's no data I have right now for that. So, No, I think it's worth a lot, though. I think, again, you're building skills. You're emphasizing scoring, not the result. That's right. You know? And if, if you focus on the middle eight, so the genius part of focusing on the middle eight, first of all, I love the idea of calling a planned timeout at practice to evaluate wherever you are. Because aren't we doing that all the time anyway? We're evaluating how practice is going. I'm evaluating how my lesson's going as I'm giving it in the classroom. I'm evaluating the mental state of my team and the effort. Uh, So to have a a few minutes purposefully designed in the middle of practice to gather everybody and say, look, this is what I see. Or this is what we need to do. Or we're doing a great job today. Or this needs to change. I think that's genius. I, don't, I hate halftime. I don't know how you feel as a coach. I, I hate it. I feel like I don't like it as a fan. I don't need a 20-minute break in the middle of watching a, a game that I'm really into. Uh, I feel like it's a big distraction for our high school athletes. And so I, I appreciate a few minutes to talk to the other coaches so we can make some adjustments. But I don't need 20 minutes. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I don't. You know, 20 minutes is a long time. Then if you go in, if it's a homecoming game. You probably got 25 minutes, and then um, I think it's just a lot of downtime. But I also think I think it can be an advantage uh, for the kids early in the season with it being so hot where they can kind of rehydrate and get back into it. But, um, you know, I'd like to see like 12 minutes. I mean, basketball you have is typically the, the time of a quarter. So in high school, halftime's eight minutes. Um, so if 12 minutes is a quarter in high school football, then just make halftime 12 minutes and – you know, let it rip, come in, make make quick adjustments, uh, assess any injuries that you have. Coaches talk about, hey, what are we going to do second half? And then let's go play. I, I like that idea a lot better than the 20 minutes that it is now. I guess my point is 
as coaches, football coaches, we always talk about give each third of the game its equal weight, you know, offense, defense, mix special teams in there so they so your practice is divided evenly among yeah, the three. It's, it's a little sprinkle. That's about it. It's yeah. A sprinkle. But but we don't ever do anything to uh like if, if I don't I, I don't know about you, I guess I should only speak for myself, but we don't do anything to to prepare for a player injury that takes a half hour because a kid, you know, laying down and, and needs medical attention. Yeah. Or we don't, we don't take half time into, into consideration. No, no, we give water breaks, but they get water pretty much whenever they want or the water breaks like two minutes, but nobody's really talking to anybody. The kids are going to get water and they're sitting on the bench and then the coaches are talking in the middle to each other, but there's no assessment of how, no. how was first half of practice? How how do no, I need the times, second half? Yeah. No, a lot of times that water break, you're exactly right. It's almost a scene change where it's like, okay, I've got my bags out because my running backs are doing individual drills over the bags or um, or whatever, and now we're going to team, so i got to shove all those off to the side. So I'll give my kids a water break while I do that so we can move on to the next period. Right. But I think the middle eight idea has merit as far as we are going to intentionally practice this. So you know about where the halfway point is, and you can turn it on and turn it off based on that because the game is ebbs and flows. I mean, football is not a slow game by any means, but if you boil it down to it, you play the whole game in six to eight minutes. Right. Well, you you think about this. How many times have a kid asked you, how many periods are we going today? Right? Right. How many periods are yep. we going today, Coach? How long is practice today? I When's that, conditioning, Coach? When's <laughs> conditioning? I think that gives them, if you do the middle eight and you have a halftime at practice, that gives them, all right, I'm at the halfway point. So it's psychological probably for them. I'm at the halfway point. Let me see. How, I, how did we do in the first half of practice? What can we get better at? How can we finish strong? How can we, you know, I don't know, like, it's like practicing halftime. It's like practicing yeah. anything else you would do, an onside kick, uh, recovery or kicking an onside kick to win a game. I mean, halftime's just as important because you go from, so say for instance, JT, you score right at the end of half. You got all this momentum. Yeah. You go in. How hard is it to get back up for that second half? You know what you I mean? You always come out flat, don't you? Always. Always come out flat. So... I think you you could have like a team session for for three minutes and then halftime. Well, then go assess that. How was that team session or how was the first part of individual one? Then come back and do another team to start the second half of practice. I mean, I'm just throwing out ideas. I don't, you know. No, no I, I think it's great. I, I know I need to be a bigger advocate for it here in Monarch football um, because it makes sense to me. I think the other thing that you get is – with focus three, and if you guys, if, if our listeners don't follow Brian Kite, uh, they don't follow focus three and what they do, you need to because they that's what they do. It's for coaches, by coaches. Um, I feel like there's a lot of people that have bought into that. But the big thing that goes with E plus R equals O is push pause. Yes. And I think that's what halftime gives you. And in our society today, fast pace, instant gratification – cell phone attached to us all the time. We don't push pause enough. And our kids, because this is the world they live in and this is the world they've been brought up in, our kids don't know how to handle when there's a little bit of downtime, I feel like. Yeah. Well, I mean, they always got their phones in their hand. It's, fat. I mean, you ever seen a kid Snapchat? There's no pause on that. They're going 90 right. to nothing. Not even, a, you know, not even when you sleep. Yeah. Like you got, I tell my athletes, don't sleep in the same room as your phone. It's hard. And there's nights where I'm disciplined and I put my phone on my kitchen island counter and, and it's three rooms away and I don't hear it. It drives my wife nuts because she sleeps in another room with our kids. But that's just, you know, so it goes off sometimes all hours of the night. But I really truly wonder how many hours of sleep my athletes get because they're rolling over and texting or rolling over and Snapchatting or checking their phone in the middle of the night. Yeah, I challenge our kids. Uh, I teach health and government. I challenge our kids in health. I said, look, 
go put your, what's the last thing you look like? Uh, look at my phone. I was like, you know, you're not supposed to look at anything or watch TV an hour before you go to bed. If you want to get some, get REM sleep. Right. Like what? I was like, yeah, the blue light from your phone that you're staring at and it's dark in your room and you're staring at it till, I mean, literally the last 10 seconds before you go to bed and you click the side button, it turns off. You put it either face down or face up <coughs> and it's the last thing they see. And then the first thing they do when they wake up, boom, yeah, it's that FOMO, that fear of missing out part that they, they can't, right? they got to have it. Well, it's so funny because that's science. That's mm-hmm. not even Coach Weaver, Coach Tory say this. They say don't sleep by your phone. No, that's science. That's what science is telling you, that, that the blue light is awful for your eyes, especially right before bed. Um, but again, unless you, you – we're probably the only ones giving that message to our athletes. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the other thing that I think is really interesting with score first, score last, or if you're focused on the middle eight, score last, score first, is we talk core values. You and I are big core value guys, principles, um, the principles that drive our daily behaviors, that drive our motivation, that drive everything that we do and the outcomes that happen, the E plus R equals O. Uh, How many programs out there actually have, you know, we want to be fast. We want to be NASCAR pace. We want to be like Steve Prefontaine. We want to go, 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 go right away. Yeah. I, I think that's a core value in a lot of places, whether it's juice or our kids up here call it sauce. You know, they don't like juice, but like sauce. I mean, that's sweet for our kids. Right. Ours so, is the ball uh, hawk. Ours is the ball hawk. Be there fast. So, relentless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's a core value in most programs. So if you score first, there it is. There's your juice. There's your sauce. There's your NASCAR pace. Yeah. There's your ball hawk mentality. Yeah. Well, see, that's how we are. I mean, we're, we were fast, up-tempo. I mean, I'm telling you, we were we were down to a team by seven with two minutes to go in a game, score a touchdown in 13 seconds, and then pick six the next play from scrimmage and win the game by seven. So that's Man. a... Your uh, your four words have intrigued me on going back and, and digging a little deeper uh, of maybe just some some basketball games at our school. Just going looking at different data, like baseball. Go look at baseball. You know, if you score first and score last in baseball, what's some of that data? Because baseball, you think about this, that's 27 outs. There's a lot being played out, you know, in a baseball game. And if absolutely, oh my goodness! So I'm just I'm thinking about different sports, and that four words and how that can impact where you're not outcome based. You are focusing on two things: scoring first, scoring last. If you're middle eight, these are, scoring last, scoring first. These are skills. These are things that will determine an outcome. You know, Bill Walsh, one of the best coaches of all time. You talk about a guy who had a philosophy and lived it and changed a city and an organization and and impacted countless other people. But he always used to say, if if you take care of everything else, the score will take care of itself. Right. That was his cliche. And I feel like that's what score first, score last does. Um, I, I want to say the same thing. I want to flip it and I want to go score last. How many of our teams out there have core values that are like, finish or Randy Jackson calls it payday or you know we want to put sometimes I'll say hey let's go put the ball in the barn you know like put the hay in the barn kind of thing yeah and it's just an Iowa farmer mentality but like finish yeah I I don't know about you but I never forget to get paid oh man I I know when that thing hits my bank account and I know when it doesn't (laughs) my my mobile deposits blowed up you know I want to see that scoreboard light up. Yeah. Whether whatever the other team has doesn't matter. That's right. I want to focus on us because that's the only true measurement that matters. And in my book, I write about how you got to pass the mirror test. You have to look yourself in the mirror. And if you score last and lose, holy cow, you're fighting to the end. That's right. I like it. 
That's stolen, man. I'm stealing it. That's good. That's good. I, I, I don't know where it came from uh, other than I agree. I was just like you where I used to focus on outcomes. That is how I define success. And then, again, you fuel your heart with different things. Uh, the things you read, the, the things that you listen to, the people you surround yourself with, right. the classes that you take, the places you go, you're fueling, fueling your heart. And so as I read about culture, as I talk about culture, as I try to live out culture, as I define my own culture and try to put my own philosophy into action that drives my behaviors, that's where this comes from. Yep. Well, you just said it there, your own. It has to be original. It can't be copycatted. It has to be original. Uh, I, I think copycat's okay if you truly are starting on the ground. Yeah. To a to an extent, copycat's okay, but I think if you if you really dive into it and you go back to what your philosophy is, I think it's going to help you shape your own core values. So I'm not just talking about core values for your team; I'm like about core values for your life of who you are as Absolutely. a man, of who you are as a man, and why wouldn't you want those Absolutely. to be instilled in your football program or your basketball program? or even in your classroom when you're teaching young kids. So that's, that's where for I'm... any readers. Yeah. For any readers that uh, need more information on this or want to know where to turn next. First of all, go buy my book more than the game on Amazon. Uh, shameless plug right there. Uh, but look, uh, I've read some of it and it's, it's well worth it. If, uh, if you want a read that will uh, sharpen your brain It'll give you some insight on different ideas. Uh, even, and I like this, JT, just the stories that are in there. Like, you you feel like you're with Coach War. Like, you feel like you're in that, that setting. And uh, it's just your storytelling is impeccable. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I couldn't do what you did. I know that. Well, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. I tried to. I tried to just uh, coach war, my main character, he's coach, he's struggling. He's lost the locker room early in the story, but that's a moment after me. And that was when the wins weren't coming, but I was only focusing on the winning. Right. And so it shows that evolution. But the book that I really, that really changed my thinking was a book I had to read for my master's program and win forever by Pete Carroll. Mm, great book. And Pete Carroll However you feel about him, because it's, he's kind of polarizing based on what happened at USC. But when all of that went down with Reggie Bush and those national championship years, and let's be honest, they were on another level in the early 2000s. That, that program was, it was amazing as far as lots of energy and winning. And it was contagious, I felt like. Um, but it really kind of ruined him the way it all went down. Yeah. And so he needed to find himself again. And I look at Pete Carroll now, he's in his mid-60s, and gosh, he looks like he's in his mid-40s. Right. <laughs> he, he might have more energy than I do, Coach Weaver. Yeah, he's... Look, he's a practical jokester, too, now. He, he gets... Yeah. I mean, he he's one of the greats now. When you, when you talk about culture and winning in the locker room, uh, I don't know. I, he's one of my favorites. I mean, he was he was cool before that. Before culture was cool, I think. I think so too. And he looks. He's got that Southern California lifestyle. You know, he's got. He it looks great. He's a surfer. Uh, but he's all about relationships. One of my favorite stories from Win Forever was how he would have pizza with his quarterbacks every Monday night in his coach's office. Yeah, and. He, by the way, he put out quite a few really good quarterbacks at his time at USC, too. <laughs> but they wouldn't watch the game. Uh, they wouldn't talk X's and O's. They would just hang out and eat pizza and live the college lifestyle. Mm. And, again, talk about building skills. I'm going to let's learn the game together. I'm not going to focus on results. We're not going to worry about who wins. Uh, but I'm going to hang out with you. I want to get to know you more and what your mental makeup is and 
you're the leader of my football team and I need to know that as your coach. But at the end of the day, I just care about you. Yeah. I had a coach like that, uh, coach Rhodes, who I played with at Delta state, uh, or played for. And then I was a GA under him. So we had a players council and, um, he named me the president of the players council. He's like, Hey, I want you to come Wednesdays, uh, around lunch and, let's eat lunch in my office and talk about what the team needs and some stuff that's being, you know, what needs to be addressed. And I said, sure. I go in and he's like, Hey, we're not going to talk much today, but my favorite show's on and we're going to watch it. And I was like, all right, we'll watch whatever you want to watch coach. And it's three amigos. So I watched the three amigos with, uh, with our coach. And you know, that I'll never forget that. I mean, that was back in 2003 and, um, you know, it's you. Just, you remember those coaches like that that are that are players' coaches, the ones that yeah. that identify with you and understand what makes you tick. But um, you know, you hear leadership council, players' council, all that being buzzwords right now. I mean, Coach Rhodes had that back in two thousand three. So yeah. all the stuff that people are now seeing, I think social media has heightened it up because everybody's tweeting about it or Instagramming about it or Snapchatting about it. But, um, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time. The world, the word culture, I just think it's more intentional now with today's athlete and millennials, um, and connecting with them now that we have cell phones. It's, it's so much more important than it ever has been. Yep. You, you better be, yeah. a, you better be a player's coach. If not, you're in trouble. Yeah. Right. And, and if you aren't, you're totally replaceable because anybody, anybody's willing to pick up a few thousand dollars to coach high school sports if, you know what I mean, if all you have to do is draw, diagram a few plays. That's right. That's right. So, no, I, I think it's really important, though, and um, I, I think the data behind it just drives the emphasis because, again, my, some of the guys I work with are like, oh, I don't know, you know, is this really, does it have any merit? Is there any teeth to it? And then I look at my score first, score last mentality and the data and 91 matches. I mean, that's a decent body of work. That's a whole season of stuff. Uh, and then to be 35 and 0 when we score first and score last, I mean, that's another decent number. It's not like right. I'm 3 and 0 and those are just three matches that ended up going away. 35 matches is a, is a decent body of work. That's a pretty sizable sample. Yeah. Like I said, I only did two seasons and some change. But you saw the data on that, and then my brain went right to the Super Bowl because you saw Legatron kick that last field goal and 47-yarder, and he misses it. So the Patriots scored first, and they scored last. And they won. So, so here's an interesting story off that. And uh, my principal is not sports-minded at all. Great human being, great lady, probably the most patient person I've ever been around. Um, and I really appreciate her, but she's not sports-minded. She texts me that night of the Super Bowl, and she goes, guess what? Patriots scored first, score last. <laughs> so, so she knows it's there. Uh, the other thing that she does to intentionally build relationships is uh, I call my middle school wrestlers the long gold line kind of like the army West point mentality, but we have gold hoodies that we wear on game day. Right. And, uh, that's our, that's our warm up. But she was going up to several of them early in the season and being like, Hey, tell me, uh, how are you going to do in the meet today? And the kids are like, score first, score last. And to have administration back you on that, it takes all the pressure of winning and losing off my plate. Thanks for joining us today in the classroom where we've talked about a coaching philosophy and how to de-emphasize winning and build skills in order to achieve true success. Coach Weaver, uh, it's been a pleasure. Like I've actually really enjoyed the last hour or so that we've been talking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fun hour. Uh, definitely doesn't seem like an hour. But uh, as I'll finish up, you talked about de-emphasizing the result and focusing on the skill. So my last year as the head junior high coach was two seasons ago. We played Jackson prep and that whole summer I was more worried about how our locker room was going to stay nice and neat. How everybody was going to stay 
orderly. Their lockers were going to be perfect. Um, we did things the right way. The locker, the weight room was put back the way it was made. Like we put it right back, put the weights back. Um, did a lot of fun team building stuff. So we played laser tag that summer. We, uh, I think we had a big old pizza party. Um, we went to, for, <coughs> excuse me, for the, the guys that made a certain percentage of the summer workouts. Uh, we went to a, a water park at the end. So we go and we play the first game of our season, which is Jackson Prep. And the junior high team, their junior high team, has not lost, hadn't lost a game in eight years. <coughs> and uh, we go into that game, and we didn't run plays perfect. We, I mean, we didn't do what we were supposed to do, according to some people. And I looked at them. And they said, well, we won. And we beat them 10 to nothing at their place. And they're like, well, do you think the you having a clean locker room uh, helped you win that game? Absolutely. Do you think having relationships with those kids in the summer? I was like, Absolutely. So, you know, nothing we did in that game. Yes, we had to make some plays and, and do certain things. Do we block the wrong guy? Absolutely. Do we miss – and, and running the wrong gap, absolutely. But we focused on, as a coaching staff, winning the heart of those kids. And as Randy Jackson says, they lay in the street for you. You know, those kids will run through a brick wall for you. And I think when you get that and you build that kind of relationship with those kids, and it, it's tough to get going. And if that's not your mantra, then, you know, kind of do the mirror test like you say. Say, what do you want to be remembered as as a coach? So we ask our teams, you know, what's their legacy going to be? Well, what are you? What's your legacy going to be as a coach? And uh, anyway, I, I just when you were talking about that at the end, I just I had to throw that story in, and I apologize, but no, no, it's great. It's a message more people need to hear. First of all, um, one of the best parts. So, like, publishing a book is my, a lifelong goal for me. I've wanted to do it for a number of years. I finally sat down and committed to it and made it happen. If, if it goes to be a bestseller, that's awesome. Uh, if I sell 12 copies to my friends and family, I mean, whatever. You know, The point is, uh, just like I'm going to de-emphasize winning, and I'm going to focus on just doing my thing, then uh, the best part of doing that, though, was reconnecting with my seventh grade football coach. Yeah. And uh, I dedicate a big section to him. And actually, he was at a couple of book signings that I've done. And he's now in his 80s. But Coach Weaver, first of all, hats off to you for coaching middle school sports because you're not getting a six-figure bonus check at the end of the season for coaching seventh or eighth grade football. No. And look, I was the OC prior. So I went from being the offensive coordinator for our varsity team to being the head middle school coach for four years. And uh, a lot of people, they ask me, they said, uh, are you all right with that? And I was like, you know, it, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, connected with those kids at an early age, and I think that's where you can connect with kids and they get to know you as a person because they're so moldable at that age. And, uh, you know, it was fun time. So now those kids that were in seventh and eighth grade, now that I'm back on the varsity team, I'm seeing them as sophomores, juniors, and now seniors. And uh, so I've coached them pretty much for six years. So those relationships are still there, and it's fun to see. Man, and I, I think back to my own seventh and eighth grade experience, and uh, kids today do not know the struggle of having to weave the belt through the hip pad, through the butt pad, through the other hip pad, and come out and get it to be exactly like it needs to be. Tell me about it. Tell me about you it. You know, huh. and so, so for you to say, well, we're going to pick up the locker room, and does that really matter? Heck yes, it matters because I walk down our middle school hallway on my way to my classroom every day and lockers are hanging off the hinges and there's stuff all over. And uh, I mean, there's just some, there's just some magical abyss that happens in a middle school where <laughs> some kids papers go and they're never found again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are, those are life skills that are taught at a critical age. Yeah. And it, and you know, we ended up, I can't remember the record of that season. Uh, but we beat them for for the first time in eight years that anybody's ever beat them in eight years. And uh, a lot of people were like, oh, but y'all didn't do this right, and y'all didn't run this play right, and y'all could have blocked that better. I said, did we win? They said, yeah. And I said, it's because we did the little things right, 
And the byproduct of us doing all those little things was us winning. Our kids knew that they were going to come and perform at a high level. And we let the game just take care of itself. And uh, by the way, we did score first. We kicked a field goal in the first half. And we scored last. Our, our quarterback had like an 18-yard run in the third quarter. So we scored first and we scored last. And, and do that and good things happen. That's right. And the sport takes care of itself. That's right. Well, so Coach Weave, again, we've been talking about coaching philosophy, and uh, I've really changed mine. Mine's those four words, score first, score last. If you're a coach, and it doesn't matter if you're brand new to the game or if you've been around and uh, have seen every level, hit us up on Twitter at CultureClass19 and tell us, what's your coaching philosophy? Uh, we'd love to know more about you and uh, how you lead other people and how you intentionally build skills.